newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis on the media issues of the week, and I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union, your host along with Dr. Alan Shartok, who is the guy who runs Northeast Public Radio, where this program originates. How you doing, Alan? I'm good, and, and I always like to get credit for having invented the Media Project. One day I was scratching my Indeed. head, and I said, why don't we have a Media Project? That's how inventions happen, scratching heads. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I was glad to be invited after you'd been doing it for a couple of years to join the show. And well, it made all the difference. The second longest relationship of my life, you know, next to my marriage, of course, <laughs> Alan, with all due respect. I hope that one's going better. <laughs> well, she's a lot faster learner than you are, Alan. So <laughs> anyway... <laughs> And it begins. Judy Patrick is here, Vice President of the New York Press Association, longtime editor of the Daily Gazette in Schenectady. You doing all right, Judy? I'm fine. I'm a relative newbie to the media project. I've only been doing it a few years. That's true, but you've brought great depth to it, and we are grateful for that. And Rosemary Romeo is here, longtime investigative journalist, editor, journalism professor. Rosemary, are you up and about and, and ready for the conversation? Oh, well, up and about. I don't know how you define that. I'm in my bathrobe sipping coffee, trying to sound brilliant this morning. TMI, Rosemary. It's lovely. You know, this thing about, I mean, with the coronavirus, the fact is we lead lives that are so different from what we used to. And, you know, for journalism, everybody is doing this work from home. I just think that we're, newsrooms will never be the same. Well, first of all, correct me if I'm wrong, Rosemary, I'm sure will. What happened is newsrooms have become sort of deserts to begin with. So there are fewer and fewer people in these newsrooms. And I think that there's something to be recognized about that. And this is just sort of the nail in the coffin. Yeah, newspapers have been especially hard hit. Print has been especially hard hit by COVID, and they're dropping off more and more both employees and daily editions. We're seeing that across the country right now. They will not come back, I predict. It's not a good thing. The Casper Star Tribune, the last seven-day-a-week print product in the state of Wyoming, has just dropped its Monday and Tuesday editions uh, this past week. And I think you're right, Rosemary, it, it will not come back. But, Judy, think about this. Think about your newsroom at the Daily Gazette for all the years. Tell me what you think of this. Is there value in the personal interaction in the newsroom, or do you think things are going 
all right with people working from home and interacting by telephone. I remember back in the day, I used to try to work from home once in a while, and I would, especially when I had all my things together and was writing, but there is nothing that can really replace sitting next to someone and feeding off their ideas, and there's a collaboration that does happen in a newsroom, and there's a team spirit that gets built when you all work together. You know, Slack can only go so far, Zoom meetings can only go so far. I often think about what, you know, sparks of inspiration are not happening because people are not getting together like they used to. Sure, there's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of donut eating. There's a lot of, you know, asking about the family and what you did on the weekends. And some people perceive that as a waste of time, but it builds a a familial relationship in a newsroom and in any work environment. I agree that newsrooms aren't going to be the same when this all, you know, finally lessens because there are fewer reporters heading back into the newsroom. It's undeniable. But I don't think we should put the nail in every coffin just yet. What do you mean by that, don't put the nail in every coffin? Not every newspaper is dying. There are there are few closing up, or there are fewer eliminating days of the week. They're not publishing Monday or Tuesday, but there are an amazing number of newspapers that are still going, still hanging in there, trying to find new ways of capturing. I mean, readership is at an all-time high. What we've got to do is figure out a way to monetize those readers and turn that into revenue to help pay these reporters and photographers. That's hard, (laughs) clearly. The New York Times has done it, and then there's all the rest of us. Uh, But that's right. I mean, readership is at an all-time high, but the trend of society to preferring digital presentation just makes the economics of it virtually impossible. You know, one of the good aspects, though, of the coronavirus is there is, you might say, less fluff, less inconsequential coverage now because there just isn't the space, nor is there the time for it. So that's at least a bit of good news, isn't it? Well, I I want to offer just a counter bit of perspective here. As an editor, I spent most of my time shooing reporters out of the newsroom to go out into communities and talk to people and not talk to each other was always fun in the newsroom, do not get me wrong. I was mostly a workaholic because work was so much superior to going home and cleaning floors and taking care of babies. So it definitely was a stimulating environment for us. But as far as the audience we served, reporters being at home out in the community, if that's allowed, is far better for the news product than being in newsrooms. Maybe it should be like the way we conduct classes now where there are certain times that you get together for that spark and that shared knowledge. But I don't think you need dedicated spaces. That That's not entirely bad. If we're looking for new models and new ways to monetize, this is the perfect opportunity to do that. It's a kick in the pants, if you will. You know, I was going to say that the pandemic and COVID has had some people making innovation because we have to. So, for example, the WAMC unit heads, 11 of us, every morning meet at 7.50 in the morning. And we have a discussion of the events of the day and where we're going. And it's interesting because it's not only the news people who are there, but it's the whole staff so that everybody knows every financial jot and tittle and everything else. And we wouldn't be doing that if we weren't sort of disparate and in different places. Well, that's good. That kind of communication, you mean you've inaugurated this because it's a way to keep people communicating during the coronavirus, but you kind of depended on a more casual approach to it before. Or no approach. I mean, I don't Mm -hmm. think that the news people necessarily knew what our CFO, our fiscal guy, was doing. Now they do. Every single day, everybody knows everything about everybody else. 
I think there's something to be said about that. I don't know how it is in private newspapers like yours, whether that sharing is really important that everybody knows everything. But in a public radio station, I think it is. I think it's important at all levels. I always thought that part of my job as the editor was to try to insulate the newsroom from having to deal with the business side of things. You don't want reporters worrying about which advertiser might be upset about a particular line of coverage. You want people to just focus on journalism. And that was one element of it. But on the other hand, it's useful for people to understand the economic pressures, the forces that are driving some of the decisions that are going on, just so that they're not working in the dark and feeling as though the organization isn't paying attention to what's going on. And it is true. My, my successor as editor, Casey Seiler, now has almost daily executive committee meetings. We used to have them weekly or as otherwise needed. But the uh, organization now is making a more intentional effort to have conversations that bring in all the elements. I think that's a good thing. What about this notion, less triviality, more coverage of systemic injustice in the news? Rosemary, do you see that happening, you think, in your survey of the news media? Yeah, I do think that reporters and other staffers are much more involved in the total business of the operation, and I would like to think that's a good thing. However, I do take some pause after what happened at the New York Times when staffers rose up against that Tom Cotton column and want to say and what goes into the newspaper and what the standards are. That seems a little chaotic to me, and I I realize that that's perhaps very backward, but I think that news developing and putting together a product requires some sort of structure. When it's completely democratic, don't we lose something? You know, this whole idea of good news or feature stories or, or fluff, the idea that we don't have enough resources to do that. That's an interesting one because you're starting to hear people say, oh, I've, I've heard too much about COVID. I've heard too much about politics. I want to read about, you know, happy things. And when you're an editor or a reporter, you think, well, is that a good use of my limited resources? And I talked to an editor a, a week or two ago who was getting bombarded by criticism because he had put a feature story on the front page when there was COVID news to cover. So I know that there's always got to be a mix. And there are stories of courage and heroics that can be found here, but definitely, you know, the cat stuck up in the tree story is not getting covered anymore. And, you know, I would say that that's a good thing. Well, that's interesting because in Great Barrington, we have a story that is breaking all records by so many of us, if not in the newspaper, and it is in the newspaper, it's people talking to each other. We have a treasure trove of bears walking around. You walk in the street and there's going to be a bear. (laughs) You are going to see a bear. That's right. B-E-A-R, not B-A-R-E, which would be a nudist colony, of course. So, <laughs> so, so these bears are walking around, mama bears, papa bears, little bears, just right bears. And let me tell you, people are more interested in those bears than virtually anything else you could possibly name, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, you know, I've fallen victim to that as well. I've spent some time as a reporter chasing bears in parks and in, in cities because it's unusual and it does get people excited. And it's one of the challenges of running a daily news operation, I guess. But there is a lot of really important news we have to cover, and hard decisions have to be made. You can't babysit a bear 24-7. You have to dip in and dip out of that story. 
Well, I think we ought to embroider that. You can't babysit a bear 24-7. There's, there's one of our slogans <laughs> for the news coverage. <laughs> well, you know, to that point, I mean, think about the important issues. Think, think about climate change, which is a huge story. You know, uh, there was a new research report that just came out in which the top global researchers on climate change have effectively narrowed the projected temperature range for global heating, saying that, no, things are actually much much worse going forward than we think. And we've seen some coverage of that report. We've seen some coverage of the fact that there has been record heat in the Arctic, widespread fires in Siberia. But, you know, this is a huge story that risks being lost in the coverage of the pandemic and the racial injustice issues that have dominated our conversations recently. And B, even if we look at bears in Barrington, (laughs) this is one of those stories that can get lost and it's hard to cover. How do you cover climate change at a local publication? Well, let me just speak for WAMC. We talk about it a lot. We talk about it in the mornings, during commentaries. We talk about it on the roundtable. We have guests who talk about it. It's the fact that there isn't the kind of appetite on the part of the people who need to have that appetite and to insist on change. That's what I worry about. So that if a man commits or a woman commits suicide, that's a story, right? A big story, especially if there's some prominence. Here is a situation in which the earth is killing itself. We are killing ourselves. In other words, we are committing suicide, but it's long-term suicide. And so there is a sort of comfort level to that or a disinterest in that, which is so disturbing. Since the COVID, we've seen some focus on this. You're, you're seeing more people biking to work because they don't want to ride the subways or they don't want you know they don't want to take the bus. One of the first casualties of the COVID was the uh, plastic bag mandate at grocery stores, and you saw a little bit of coverage of that early on, but that's kind of gone away. And whatever happened to you know you can't use a plastic bag at the grocery store story. I think people are changing how they eat. And, you know, diets are changing. New York has a plan to reduce carbon emissions by a certain year. But the stories seem to be scattered, and getting people to actually read them is one of the challenges. I think you can get people to read about whether or not they have to use a reusable shopping bag to the end of time or whether or not they're going to go vegan. But getting them to talk about or to read stories about environmental justice or about what's happening with icebergs is a challenge, and it's something the industry has to do better at. They just have haven't done much. And the other problem is we have fewer reporters. And so we were starting to create beats to deal with climate change, but that has gone away as these newsrooms have collapsed. Rosemary? I think what's missing is not the coverage of individual stories, but the connection that makes climate change and immigration, for example, the big stories that they are. We used to talk in investigative reporting about raking all the leaves. That lots of places would write about bears in the street. That's related to climate. What, what the mm-hmm. are they doing in Great Barrington? It's because of habitat removal and climate change. It's that big picture that's missing from reporting. And yes, it does get much harder to do when you have fewer people. You don't have comprehensive beats. You don't have comprehensive coverage of any single community or topic like we used to. Um, And I think there needs to be more integration of media, not just cooperation, which we're seeing, collaborations that we're seeing a lot more of, but a kind of awareness that we're going to relate everything to climate that we can, the plastic bags, the bears in the street, remind readers in every story that this is part of a larger story. It's that context that's missing. 
We've never done an exceptionally good job on it, which is why we've missed some huge stories going back to, you know, the bank failures, the saving and loans failures, and the housing failures in the 60s and 70s, because we are there doing daily stories rather than big picture stories. And magazines, we don't have as many of those anymore of the Atlantic and Harper sort that take big picture views. You're talking about book topics. How does daily journalism do book topics? I think that's a very good point. Alan was making, I think, a quite a compelling point that it is such a big story, the planet committing suicide, let's say. But it's difficult. You know, too often in the news business, we wait for news to happen and then we cover it. But this is one of those situations where we actually have in front of us all the data we need. We have the scientific consensus, notwithstanding the dumb outliers who claim otherwise, but we know what is here. But when there are hurricanes threatening, We need to point out that storms are more potent because of climate change. You're exactly right. Bears in the streets. This is a climate issue. But it is just such a big story that it's almost hard for us to cover it because the immediate takes our attention. You have to cover what's right in front of you. And that makes it just so, so difficult. One of the reasons I love this program so much is that we have three editors and me. And the three editors can be relied on to say, okay, let me give you a situation and you tell us how you would handle it. You have three reporters or two reporters that you can really assign to anything. And now we have climate change on the one hand, which is so important. Or we have what happened to Johnny Jones yesterday on the street. We know where you're going to go. There is no impetus to go for the long-term story because even though it's incredibly important, you know, you guys have to make these assignments and you do it based on compelling need. Well, you can do both of the stories, though. If you have enough resources, that is the issue. Uh, we used to have long-form Sunday stories, we used to call them, where you, or investigative pieces. But that takes time, and it takes resources, and time and resources are, are one of the things that journalism is really lacking nowadays. You're starting to see some you know, public nonprofits come up and maybe help fund some of this climate journalism. Maybe that is the solution, but you never know where that nonprofit funding is coming from and whether or not the end result is going to be You know, one of the interesting points about this Time magazine, which is sort of an anachronism, I suppose, but Time now puts out special issues, and they put out a climate change issue recently that had a a very compelling narrative that said, from our vantage point today, 2020 looks like the year when an unknown virus spun out of control, killed hundreds of thousands, and altered the way we live day to day. But in the future, we may look back at 2020 as the year that we decided to keep driving off the climate cliff or to take the last exit. You know, so it is it is really just such a an important story that we need to keep wrestling with how to cover it. That said, we also need to talk about this journalism issue that is is back at us. The return of the coronavirus press conference. The president is going back in front of reporters once again after a couple of months of walking away from the coronavirus story. So we are back at this question. Should networks be covering the president live? And what kind of attention should the non-live news media, what kind of attention should all the rest of us pay to this particular story? Alan is the political scientist in our midst. You get to start on this one. What should be our approach to Donald Trump going back onto the White House podium? 
Well, gee, thanks, Rick. So I'm not only a political scientist, of course, but I also run a series of public radio stations. And I know that you know these morning meetings I talk about, this has been a constant matter of discussion. We have to think about whether or not we want to give him an unabated platform to say this is going to be about climate change, but turns out to be nothing but chest thumping and the rest. Now, once it all got started, CNN did it, MSNBC did it every day, and then there was a counter-reaction. They put Andrew Cuomo on the air virtually every day that the president was on, and I think they were saying this is a, this is a counter to the presidential news conference. And yet, now they have a second chance, because now he goes back on, and he doesn't do a very good job of it. Again, chest beating. But CNN and MSNBC, at least the day that I watched, weren't there. And I think that's a good thing, because the national news, NBC, CNN, and others will incorporate what he said in a few seconds into their national news programming. But there are those who say, Rosemary reacted to this, that we ought to air it in its entirety to let the world see how he stumbles about and says untruths. Actually, showing the full Trump is, is actually the right way to do journalism. What do you think? I agree. I, first of all, personally love watching them, and I'm sure that my reaction to Trump is different than a lot of other people who love it because they admire him so much. Also, he is the president. And thirdly, most importantly, when the media starts saying this is politics and we aren't going to cover it, this is public service and we are, you're making political decisions that lay you completely open to claims of bias. Show it all. I agree with the position CNN took one of the days where they didn't cover the part, which was essentially a campaign rally, and then they went in when the reporters started asking questions. I think these are campaign rallies, and if people really want to see them, they can turn to Fox News or they can turn to C-SPAN because they'll be airing them live. I think the idea of showing people you know, how meandering he is and how his thought process is, is not logical, I think we've all had an ample opportunity to see that for three years. I think people are not going to be convinced that he, his intellect, intelligence is waning, no matter how much more they see. If they haven't seen it by now, they're never going to realize it. So I think we should not cover it live. I'm okay with covering the questions live. It's fun for me as a journalist to watch it. It's kind of like sports. But I never believe I get real information. If they had the medical experts out there, sure, have those briefings. But this thing, he's doing it for political reasons. That's why it doesn't matter that he's a president because he's unlike any other president we've ever had. Sure, sure. Somebody will say it's political, like Rosemary just did. That's political. Politics, of course, is the, I've said it before, the allocation of scarce resources, and being on the air is a scarce resource. He wants it. His numbers are going down. His advisors are telling him, you better go back on the television, and you better not act the way that you were acting. At least that's what I surmise is going on here. But, Rosemary, yes, there's always going to have to be decision-making as to what gets precedence and whether or not you have a rambling, bumbling, rather dangerous and rather stupid man on every night beating his chest and talking about personal opinions. Yeah, you're going to get accusations and somebody's going to say you're biased. But so what? There's such a thing as right and wrong. 
So does that mean WAMC, their public radio stations, are not carrying it? Is NPR carrying it? NPR does not carry it. They do not have anchored coverage, which would make it much easier. Our plan, frankly, was to put it on our HD2 station. That's the second station you can get if you come to WAMC.org. But when we called NPR and said, we'll take it, and they said, no, we don't have it anchored. Now, we could have gotten it and just put them on. And I think we may do that in the future, HD2, for exactly the reasons that Rosemary is saying. It mitigates the claims that we're not being fair about the whole thing. Nevertheless, there are decisions to be made. And the decisions involve often uh, tough journalistic choices, which you make about how you deal with somebody who often doesn't speak factually. What about the Chris Wallace interview? As our program begins to wind down, we have to look at the interview that Chris Wallace did where he challenged the president. What's your take on that, Rosemary? Tell us how you would view the very clearly tough interview by Chris Wallace on Fox, which you don't expect from Fox, right? Yeah, I saw it. I will be teaching that in investigative reporting class. It was a masterful interview. He was totally prepared, never lost an ounce of respectfulness towards the president, and yet held him accountable. The setting was unfortunate for Trump, and it was of Trump's own choosing to go outside when it was at 100 degrees in Washington. Both men are in suits. And it was Trump who was sweaty and red-faced. That did not make him look good. It reminded me of Nixon with the shadow of a beard during the debates. An unfair thing, but I'm a big believer that physical looks affect people's reception of you. And so Trump made a mistake in that one, which is rare for him because he knows about how to market himself. The single best moment, in my opinion, was when Trump was answering charges about how he was bragging on the cognition test he took. And it really was not much of a test. And Wallace goes, well, you know, the last five questions, he says to Wallace, you could not even have answered. And Wallace immediately came back because he was so prepared and said, one of those questions was count by seven backward from 100. And then he immediately goes, 93, and Trump cut it off. So you knew without him saying, without (laughs) anyone saying anything, Trump couldn't do it. It was just really a terrific interview. Now, it has made me wonder that I think it's so good. What if I were a Trump supporter? How would I regard that? If supporters of Sarah Palin thought that Katie Couric had a gotcha interview, they would certainly see this as one also. Yeah, we're running out of time, but I just wanted to point out that Margaret Sullivan, the uh, wonderful media columnist for The Washington Post, said that this is nothing more than a fig leaf for Fox News, that it's something that the network's brass and PR staff can now point to to counter the criticism that Fox News is nothing but a cheerleader for the president and there you go. They're back on the air with, with Tucker Carlson, with Hannity, with Fox and Friends, all advocating for the president. So let's not get too lax about Fox News. Cheers for Chris Wallace, not for Fox News. Well, that's oh, yeah. all we well, have I... time for. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. That's it. So grateful to Judy Patrick and Rosemary Armeo and Alan Shartok and to our producer, David Gustina, and I'm Rex Smith. We are grateful especially to you, our listeners, for joining us once again this week on The Media Project. They all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspapermen are such interesting people.
The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Judy Patrick is the Vice President for Editorial Development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs> <laughs>